Automated red light cameras have been absent from St. Louis streets since 2015. But St. Louis Mayor Lida Cruzen's administration is talking about bringing the devices back online. Todd Walterman, the city's director of operations, contends the cameras are needed to enhance public safety. I mean, look at the video. You watch these people that just have no, no care in the world blowing these lights blatantly. But not everybody agrees with Walterman. So on this edition of Politically Speaking, Julie O'Donohue and I talk with St. Louis Public Radio's Kay Petrin about the controversial cameras. We also check in with the Kansas City Star's Brian Lowry about how Missouri's congressional delegation is reacting to President Donald Trump's impending impeachment. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio today is... Julie O'Donohue. And our special guest host for this segment... Kay Petrin. Um, we're going to be talking about red light cameras, which we have to. I have to get this out of the way. I have gotten a red light ticket before. Um, I went to court and I successfully challenged it. I feel like people should know that before we talk about that, that I, I am not an uninterested observer in this. In fact, anybody who drives through the street of, of St. Louis, whether they're a reporter or not, has probably dealt with this before. Kay, can you give us a sense of where St. Louis is as far as potentially bringing these devices back online? So it's early days in terms of uh, figuring out what exactly they're going to do. They've put out uh, a request for sort of proposals of how they might bring back uh, the cameras, what sort of technology they would need, and how much it would cost uh, to restart the program. And so those those they requested a few weeks back, and they're still coming in. So they they won't really know what their options are even until they've reviewed those and um, and looked at the advantages and disadvantages to the options from different companies. From talking with St. Louis Mayor Lida Cruz's administration, why are they interested in bringing these cameras back? So the big reason that they cite is that after the cameras were decommissioned um, between sort of 2014 and 2015, uh, the citywide accident fatalities went way up um, in over a three-year period. So I guess we should go over why the cameras came down in the first place, and that's because the Missouri Supreme Court, in a couple different rulings, decided that uh, the cameras were unconstitutional? Basically. Yeah. Yeah. They um, they said that they have to be able to tell that the person who the car is registered to is in the car driving at the time right. to ticket the person. As opposed to the license plate of the car, correct? Yeah. And I think the most interesting thing about the city maybe trying to bring the cameras back is how they're going to address that, which... Uh, <laughs> Remind me, Kay, or tell me if I'm mistaken, Kay, 
is because maybe they're going to use facial recognition software to identify drivers. So they wouldn't discuss specific technologies with me. They said that they really need to see the uh, proposals before they can discuss that. But they they have to have some way of of uh, they have to have some way of seeing the person. So could be facial recognition. Maybe they'll have a person reviewing a higher resolution photo. It's it's hard to say. So I was talking about this issue kind of offhandedly with a couple of members of the St. Louis Board of Aldermen. And, and, and a couple people want the cameras back because of the aforementioned safety issues. Others, though, are, are concerned that this isn't about safety. This is about making private red light camera companies a lot of money. Uh, American Traffic Solutions, which had the contract before they were shut down, had a lot of very well-connected people working for them when the cameras were put online. Have you gotten a sense about whether that could be kind of an issue about bringing them back? Yeah, people are really worried about that. Uh, The city has sort of repetitively said, this isn't about money. Any extra income that we make off the program after we pay for it, uh, will go towards the streets. Um, but there's a there's a lot of skepticism. But that is about money. I mean, it's not just that the private company is getting money. It, it They're they're saying they're going to use the money to help fix streets, which means they're using the program to for a city service or to fund city government. Yeah. And the thing that really hits me or strikes me with the sort of numbers that they're citing um, is that when you talk to experts about these red light programs and, and safety, uh, the, the, the numbers that the city's referring to don't necessarily make sense as a good measure of whether or not safety actually even changed after they shut off the uh, cameras in the first place. Um, so, for instance, they're looking at a three-year period, but if you actually look at the numbers year by year, you see a spike and then it goes back down. Um, I spoke to a researcher, Justin Gallagher, at Montana State University. He studied uh, red light camera programs in Texas. And he said often what what you see in these programs is that there will be a spike when they turn on or turn off the cameras. Uh, but it w- resolves on its own regardless of whether the city has a red light camera program in place. Um, and in, in St. Louis, we are seeing that the initial crest has gone down. I think we have to bring up that in reaction to the city looking at this proposal, Councilman Fitch has introduced a proposal in St. Louis County to try to get red light cameras and speed cameras banned. He told me he thought when the Supreme Court ruled the way they did uh, a few years ago that these cameras were gone forever. But he says since there's been advances in technologies that might bring them back, he wants them banned. And the process for that is it has to go through the county council and eventually go to a public vote. But he he told me he sees them as a cancer and he's afraid that the cancer will spread from the city to the county. Um, And it's worth mentioning that St. Charles County already has a ban in place. Um, But yes, he said he really thinks this is about money. Again, he used to be the head of police in St. Louis County, and he has strong feelings that you shouldn't make money for government off of public safety measures. So you shouldn't be implementing a public safety measure that's like a revenue generator. More broadly, he just thinks that's uh, inappropriate. Uh, I, I requested the documents for how much they made off of the old program, and the net revenue from uh, 2005 to 2017 was more than $36 million. 
that's not an insignificant amount of money. I mean, that's that's a lot of money. So yeah. how can they say that they're not expecting to make a lot of revenue off of it? It might be more expensive this time around to to uh, have whatever technology. But again, they sort of like all of this comes with the caveat of they were sort of like, well, the program's probably just going to be paying for itself. And we can't really speak now because we haven't seen the proposals and we don't know. It, it all kind of came with the hedge of we don't really know what it looks like yet. So, yeah, I mean, it's really become in vogue among municipal policymakers to talk about the Ferguson Commission and to talk about overhauling criminal justice. It just strikes me as kind of a a false dichotomy to make those types of policy aspirations and then set up red light cameras, which are going to be very detrimental to low income people. So has that been brought up as a potential pushback to this? I haven't heard anyone saying that yet, but I would not be surprised if it comes up down the line, Um, especially because when it comes to contesting tickets like this, uh, people who are lower income are already at a disadvantage for having the time and resources just to go to court and and, uh, say, you know, that wasn't me or or that I actually did stop and you just didn't register it, et cetera. Or... The facial recognition software you used identified someone that's not me. I that mean, too. I, I, I hate to come back to this, but if they are going to use that, we do have to think about both this private company and the police department having access to literally thousands, if not millions, of facial recognition images of people. Yeah, and again, I, I'm not, I'm not advocating this point, but like, what happens if people are wearing like a mask? to try and uh, dodge this. I, I I know that sounds ridiculous, but I wouldn't be surprised if people started doing that so they wouldn't be caught up in this. H- has that been brought up at all? <laughs> I have not heard that from anyone except you, but I have seen a lot of people driving around with the Guy Fox masks just tied <laughs> to their uh, rearview mirrors, and I wouldn't be surprised if they use them for something like that. So who knows? So, so is this really the start of V for Vendetta? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> or watch Red light cameras instead of... <laughs> well, Kay, thank you very much, and we'll be following this story as it goes on. And now I'm going to turn the questioning duties over to Julie because she's going to be asking about something that I covered. And the last thing I would want to do is ask questions to myself. (laughs) So, Jason, I hear that the Board of Aldermen is thinking about banning conversion therapy. Can you explain what that is and where they are in the process? So, for lack of a better word, conversion therapy is this program that often parents send minors to who are LGBTQ with the attempt to make them heterosexual. Uh, Many psychologists have called this just pseudoscience and have debunked it and have said it's dangerous. And a number of cities across the state have actually banned it. So the St. Louis Board of Aldermen took up Alderwoman Christine Ingracia's legislation. By the time you listen to this podcast, it will likely finally passed and been sent to St. Louis Mayor Lida Cruzen's desk. It allows people to complain to the health department if they find that there's a conversion therapy business in St. Louis. It would allow the city to fine those businesses up to $500. It, it doesn't necessarily mean like conversion therapy entities can't set up in, say, St. Louis County or Jefferson County or St. Charles County. But I think that for many aldermen, they 
want to send a message that this type of thing is not welcome in the city of St. Louis. Right. So I guess my question is, is there a is this a solution in search of a problem? Is there is there a scourge of conversion therapy taking place in the city of St. Louis? I'm not really sure that's the case, but I think that for a lot of aldermen that really feel that this practice is dangerous, they they not only want to send a message, but they also want to put some statutory teeth in the books to make sure that no entity sets up here. I'm going to play a clip now from Alderman Shane Cohn. He's the first openly LGBTQ member of the Board of Aldermen. And I think that he put his reasons for supporting this bill uh, like this. Just because something has therapy in the title does not mean that it is approved therapy by medical professionals and psychiatrists. It has been confirmed that it does irreparable damage to individuals who participate in this program. It causes people to commit suicide. It causes young people to live lives that aren't true to themselves. In fact, Alderman Cohn, who represents the 25th Ward of St. Louis, which is kind of a southeastern ward, would not even call this therapy. In fact, he was discouraging people from calling it therapy because it has the connotation of being like medically approved by professionals. And, you know, it's an all democratic body. And many of the members are supporters of LGBTQ rights. And I think that they see this as a reasonable policy initiative. Not everybody on the board of aldermen agreed with this. Alderman Brandon Bosley of the third ward in North St. Louis felt that it was an infringement on the rights of parents of how to raise their kids. I'm going to play a clip of Alderman Bosley right now. But when it comes down to realistically, are we regulating parents because parents have been doing things the wrong way realistically? Are we regulating parents because children have grown up and said, I didn't like that? And I think every single child like me would not like that also. I think we need to ensure that we are still giving the parents the ability to make these hard choices because the government don't give a hell about these kids. I would say that Alderman Bosley's opinion is was not really well shared by the board. In fact, Alderman Cohn had a very strong rebuke for the argument that this is about parental rights when he was saying that this could do really severe damage to LGBTQ kids. When it comes to conversion therapy, are they talking about just programs that apply to children or, you know, in some cases, adults enroll themselves in these these types of programs too? Would it apply to adult programs as well? According to Ingracia's bill, it, 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 and I'm going to read it verbatim, it shall be unlawful for any provider to provide conversion therapy or reparative therapy to a minor if the provider receives compensation in exchange for such services. So this is this is about minors, according to the bill. I guess the next thing that we'll be looking out for is if the St. Louis County Council will take up a similar piece of legislation, although it would probably only affect unincorporated St. Louis County, because I'm not really sure that they would have the power to ban entities from setting up in, in municipalities, but individual municipalities could. So there could be individual St. Louis County municipalities that pass a similar bill. Well, at the risk of sounding snarky, St. Louis County might be looking for ways to ingratiate themselves to the LGBTQ community after the dust up over the Wild Haper case. No, really? <laughs> we'll have to see if that happens. Thank you, Julie, for, for questioning me. We'll be right back after this break with the Kansas City Star's Brian Lowry. 
And we're back on Politically Speaking, and joining us from a phone booth in Washington, D.C., we have the Kansas City Star's Brian Lowry. Brian, you were telling me yesterday, are you the only reporter out of millions of reporters in the U.S. Capitol that's covering Missouri's delegation now? I'm the only one covering Missouri's delegation, and I'm the only one covering Kansas's delegation. So, and I was about to ask uh, about yeah, Kansas. Right. You know, um, McClatchy, our parent company, owns both the Kansas City Star and the Wichita Eagle, so we, we kind of have the two biggest news entities for Kansas. And then in Missouri, just about two years ago or so, there, were, there was a lot of competition with the Kansas City Star, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, even uh, Springfield having someone from the USA Today team keeping an eye out uh, for Missouri. But these days, it's pretty lonely can you explain what Senator Blunt's role is going to be if he's on the Senate Intelligence Committee? Is he playing like a big role when when presumably it goes to a trial in the Senate or not? Uh, Senator Blunt will play a significant role uh, when it comes to Senate trial, but perhaps even more important than his role in the Intelligence Committee, which gives him a lot of access to a lot of information, is actually his, his status as rules chairman. So a lot of the the... Um, wrangling over the rules for the Senate trial as rules chairman, he'll be at the center of that. And he will also, just as a member of the overall GOP leadership team, have a lot of influence in the messaging of the Republican caucus, in getting everybody online in the in the same page about how they're going to to fight against it. So Blunt has been, he's not been someone who's been going in to as much the fighting, like he, you won't hear Roy Blunt use the phrase deep state, which you did, I think you did hear Josh Hawley use that fairly early on in the impeachment process. Uh, but you will hear Roy Blunt talk a lot about the process, and uh, he will be a central player once it comes to the Senate. I know in your most recent article, you focused on Kansas Congresswoman Sharice Davids of the Overland Park area, who defeated a Republican incumbent. And she came out for impeachment. But is the the fact that Trump is likely not going to be removed from office from this kind of on the minds of people that may be in more swing districts than very Democratic ones like Cleaver and Lacey Clay in St. Louis? It's, it's definitely at the forefront of people's minds. You're correct that Trump will be the third president impeached. He will also be the third president acquitted by the Senate. So it keeps the pattern, which which is the House impeaching the president and then the the Senate uh, acquitting them. Um, it, it's one reason why, you know, if you, if one thing I, that I talked to Lacey Clay, uh, who was the first, first member of either the Missouri or the Kansas delegations to come out for impeachment, he came out uh, for impeachment in the spring. He's been pretty vocal on it. Um, I asked him the other day uh, what he saw as kind of the next couple of days looking like, and he did predict that about five or ten Democrats will probably vote against impeachment. Um, it won't be enough to stop impeachment from passing in the House, but it's a sign that not all of the Democrats who in swing districts see it as a political win to get um, on board with that. I also wanted to know, what have you been hearing from Congresswoman Ann Wagner? Curious. We, we've not been hearing much from her. I mean, I think you can see a little bit of a contrast between Congresswoman Wagner and Congresswoman Hartzler on this. So Congresswoman uh, Wagner, we expect to have maybe the only competitive federal race in uh, 
Missouri next year. I think a lot of people still think she's fairly safe, but she is the only target uh, of the Democrats in Missouri uh, right now that is going to get national money. That um, may or may be, may, may be why I'm asking about her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and and so if you notice, she's she's clearly against impeachment, but she's not centering her talking points on this. I don't think I didn't. I, I, there may have been one, and I apologize if I missed it. But I didn't see any strong statement from her uh, when the articles of impeachment uh, were released. I also don't think she was at the forefront in voicing opposition during the inquiry. I mean, her position is clear, but she's also not necessarily getting involved in the theatrics that some members of the Republican caucus are. And, you know, look at Congresswoman Hartzler. She was among the Republicans who, who sort of stormed the gates uh, when during the earlier stage in the impeachment inquiry when, um, when some of the witness interviews were taking place in a sort of closed-door secure facility, uh, a number of Republican congressmen and women, uh, sto- you know, demanded access. They got in. They disrupted um, the witness interviews and then held a, a press conference afterwards. Congresswoman Hartzler was right there. She was right in the thick of it. So you can look at her in her central Missouri district. She maybe feels a bit more freedom to be outspoken on this than Wagner does in a swing district where maybe it's advantageous to her to be against impeachment but not to make it her sole issue. I mentioned this on a previous show, but this is not the first rodeo for Missouri political reporters and and ousting a chief executive through the impeachment process. And I vividly remember that there were many Republicans on board with impeaching Eric Greitens after his litany of scandals. You don't really see that with President Trump. And I have my theories about why. But do you have any insight on why maybe some of the members of the Missouri delegation were probably okay with getting rid of Greitens, but are not okay with getting rid of Trump? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple reasons, but we should actually note that there's one person in the federal delegation of Missouri who was actually there in Jeff City when Greitens was facing all of his pressure. And it's Josh Hawley, who was attorney general of the time uh, he was Attorney General of Missouri at the time and was pretty outspoken about the need to investigate Greitens. His office investigated uh, Governor Greitens. Came, uh, he accused him of, of potentially committing felony computer tampering, and he shared the evidence with um, Kim Gardner's office, which actually brought a second charge uh, against the governor. You know, Hawley was outspoken in the, the about... Uh, once some of the revelations came out that that Grayton should step down from office, he is, he's taken a very different tone when it comes to Trump, and he, he obviously has taken a, a different tone about the investigations related to Trump, where he's const- he's constantly said they need to wrap up. Whereas with Grayton, he he really did want to assess all the facts. I think one thing that shows is that Grayton really didn't build too many allies in Jefferson City. But you could also say that Trump hasn't been the best about. Um, about outreach to Republican lawmakers either, but clearly based on polling data, Republican lawmakers still see their chances uh, tied very closely to Trump, where stepping out of line with Trump could bring on a, a primary challenge that you really do need the president's support um, in November. So I think it's one reason why you haven't seen that same level of skepticism uh, towards Trump that you did with Greitens is 
I think there's, among Republicans, whether they're from Missouri or other states, they still think they need Trump, whereas I think it was pretty clear at a certain point uh, Missouri Republicans did not see any advantage to sticking with Eric Greitens. Well, Brian, thank you very much for your time, and I think we'll try to check back with you when uh, the impeachment trial happens, which I guess will be in January or February, or it could be a six-month saga, apparently. (laughs) Right, which, keep in mind, Roy Blunt was here the last time we went through one of these, only at that point he was a a U.S. House member. So uh, Roy Blunt, is his tenure in Congress has now spanned two impeachments. And I believe uh, Congressman Jason Smith was still in high school during that. So. <laughs> Thank you again. I, think Brian. I was in middle school. <laughs> Thank you again. You have a good one. I appreciate All it. Right. Bye. Bye. And now we come to our final segment, which we lovingly call Show Me Something. This week I want to talk about speechifying and speeches and speeches that we remember. I'm a former high school debater, I actually went to the Illinois State Debate finals all four years of high school, and I'm a sucker for a good speech. And Julie, I wanted to ask you, like, what was your most memorable speech that you saw in person, but also just like the most memorable speech in politics that you can would want to share today? Yeah, so I, uh, the most memorable one I saw in person, I actually don't remember what was said during the speech, but it was more the timing of it. It was when Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal decided to drop out of the presidential campaign. And he made this speech on the grounds of the Louisiana governor's mansion. And it was timed, uh, I think we all assume, and some of us heard off the record, to sort of step on Senator David Vitter, who was running for governor at the time, on his momentum. So... Senator Vitter, a fellow Republican, was having a very hard time getting traction in the governor's race against the current governor, John Bell Edwards. Probably had a little bit to do with the fact that he hired prostitutes. Correct. So he finally was getting some traction, running some anti-immigrant ads. It looked like he was gaining a little bit of momentum. And Senator Vitter and Bobby Jindal really don't like each other. So Bobby Jindal decided to time the fact that he was dropping out of the presidential race at a time when he knew that Senator Vitter was trying to uh, get some attention and was, in fact, getting some attention. It was amazing trolling between two like very high, uh, powerful elected officials. It was kind of a, a callback, uh, Governor Jindal, when he announced he was running for governor eight years earlier, had planned this elaborate um, announcement, and it was planned out to the T. And Senator Vitter, who was going through the aforementioned prostitution scandal at the time, decided to step on Bobby Jindal's announcement for running for governor by having a press conference addressing the prostitution issue. Oh, man. At the very same time. So Louisiana politics is petty. <laughs> yeah. And passive aggressive. So it, it was literally Governor Jindal getting back at David Vitter for something that had happened eight years earlier, and they enjoyed every moment of it. Oh, and Governor Jindal got asked during this press conference if he had voted in the governor's election yet. And Bobby Jindal said, yes, he had, but refused to say who he had voted for. <laughs> and and you have to understand, John Bell Edwards and Bobby Jindal were like political foes for years. So the fact that Bobby Jindal wouldn't say if he had voted for Senator Vitter, it was just, it was kind of amazing. So yeah. that that is, that's one of my examples. 
Jason, do you want to go to your example? You know, I don't want to humble grab here, but I have seen Barack Obama speak once in Rolla and once in Columbia, Missouri. But honestly, even though the spectacle was really amazing, I don't remember anything that he said there. Like the speech was unremarkable. Um, I've definitely seen a lot of speeches on the Missouri Senate floor that I could probably point to as being impactful. Um, I mean, frankly, the speeches I heard on the last day of session about the eight-week abortion ban were memorable for not because the subject matter was great, but because I think people were talking as real people. I think for me, like, there's no real contest on this. Um, It was the last Ferguson Commission meeting. I've written about this before. Uh, The Ferguson Commission co-chairman Starsky Wilson was asked to say a few words about the end of this commission that was formed after the shooting death of Michael Brown in Ferguson. And his words, I I didn't forget them at the time, and I still think about it to this day, about how he encapsulated kind of the pre-Trump, pre-Republican takeover of Missouri state of play in American politics. Here's about 45 seconds from that address. If the win for you is getting elected, we don't need you. If you eat steak because you got what you wanted and the community is still fighting for a generation, you're not the one. We eat burgers now. It's a long time before we get to eat steaks. So tonight we're pleased to be a part of this process, but this is just ground beef. We get to the real work, we get to the real victories when we can say, when we continue to count down that these policy recommendations have been implemented, that people who have been elected, the people who are true leaders in this community, who have their hands on the levers of power, are champions for this kind of positive change. I, I don't want to, like, overstate that a speech can just affect people's lives that much, but I, I would say... For- Truthfully, after hearing that, that really did make me change my thoughts about who I am as a reporter, who I am as a citizen of this community, who I am as a fairly privileged middle class white person and what I can do to help um, end the centuries long racial disparities and injustices in this community. And I think looking back at it, that was done in December 2015. In December 2019, it's been a, it's been exactly four years since he made that speech. I think St. Louis still has an incredibly long way to go before we can reach the benchmarks that he talked about in that address. But I do see a little bit more momentum in St. Louis County. We talked about that kind of ad nauseum with the election of Wesley Bell and the departure of Steve Stenger and the rise of this progressive coalition. But I do think it's going to take more than just politicians to reach the aspirations of, of Reverend Wilson's speech. It's going to take everyday people. That is a high compliment, Jason. Yes. Thank you, Julie, for sharing that. Thank you to both Kay Patron and Brian Lowry for joining us. Uh, Fred Ehrlich is our political editor. Shula Newman is our executive editor. And John Larson is our sound engineer. You can read all of our stories at stillpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Julie? You can go to J.S. O'Donohue. And we'll be, we will be back next time. Until then, so long.